Hello and welcome to The Gold Podcast. I'm your host, Helena Beer, the editor of Gold, and after her arrival as a host, then sudden departure due to illness, I'm very pleased to welcome back my co-host and assistant editor, Isabel O'Brien. Isabel, how are you doing? Hello, it's good to be back. I was rather taken out last week, but I am feeling a lot better now. How are you doing? How have things been? Oh, I'm glad to hear you are feeling better. It's so good to have you back. And yes, I am very well, thank you. It's been a very busy week. I had some annual leave at the beginning of the week and then it's been all systems go to sign off um, gold. The next issue is uh, in its final stages, so it's all coming together very nicely. Um, one of the elements that we are always most excited to share is Gold's Catalyst interview, and that's what we're going to be focusing on today, isn't it? We're very pleased to be releasing a special extended version of that interview. Yes. So for anyone that doesn't know, in every issue of Gold, we handpick an influential pharma leader to tell us why pharma, why they got into the industry, a little bit about their trajectory, and also just to dig into the state of the industry today. So really get into some of those hot topics that are relevant to them as individuals. And for this issue, uh, I caught up with a phenomenal lady by the name of Rashima Kemps-Polanco, who is the Executive Vice President and US Head at Novartis Oncology. She spoke to me about her drive, her passion for diversity in all of its forms, and importantly, how she finds time for family amid her very busy work schedule. Yes, Rashima oversees all of Novartis's commercial and medical oncology operations in the US while maintaining the role of, as she puts it, mum, wife and CEO of the household. I love that description. It's, <laughs> it's such a good term. Yeah, me too. Her approach to juggling work and home life is one of integration rather than the somewhat traditional balance that we commonly talk about. As she says that, that balance is a goal that constantly evades her and I think most of us will be able to relate to that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And Rashima, she really is an inspirational leader and she's got some truly unique approaches to business, driving better patient outcomes and getting the most out of her teams as well. So I think without further ado, we should get into the interview. We should indeed. I'm really looking forward to this one. So take it away. So we are going to join the conversation about 10 minutes into my chat with Rashima and I've just asked her to share the story of her early professional life. Like many, she didn't have the most traditional route into pharma. So let's hear her story. My undergraduate degree is in social work. I started off in finance commercial banking uh, because uh-huh. um, my mother uh, was really big in you know, math and, and the sciences and you know, very quantitative. And she mm-hmm. felt, you know, honestly, from a practical standpoint, that it could take me really, really um uh, you know, great places in my career if I was were to focus there. Um, and it's, it's funny, my sister did uh, major in that and had an MBA, but it wasn't my route. It wasn't my purpose. And I now I know why. I didn't know why at the time, but I know why now. I was really drawn to service and being, you know, in service to others and being a problem solver, making a difference and having an impact. And I think for me, again, I didn't recognize it then. If I had to crystallize it for you now, I know exactly what it is. I wanted to have a life of significance uh, versus success. And I think if you do live a life of significance, success will come, if that makes sense. And so I was really drawn to social work. Uh, I was really drawn to the healthcare industry. I did a number of my internships there when I was in college. Uh, I worked in long-term care uh, right out of uh, college. Um, And then uh, I went back to get a graduate degree and I thought, hmm, 
I should probably get something um, that's more business focused that will give me that side of it. And uh, I decided to, but I still wanted to be involved with people. Um, and so it was more of an HR focus, which was more around industrial organizational psychology or development. And that was my graduate degree. Now, this experience I had in the Army is interesting because all of these things uh, inter, I, I would say, kind of uh, intersected. When I was in high school, um, the recruiters came and said, hey, you know, they were talking to the students and what have you about going into the military. And I thought, oh, well, you know, I'll take the test for that. I wasn't really thinking I would do that, but I, I scored, my scores came back. And, and then I had all these recruiters across the different armed forces coming uh, to me about joining the Army. And, and I said, you know what, I, I would like to do that. And the reason I did it, Isabel, was I saw it as a path, one, one for service, but two, as a path to help pay for college. And that's why I say some of these ran in parallel. I signed, I joined the Army Reserve, but I had to take off a year uh, to go through basic training, to go through, you know, uh, learning my skill or my my uh, technical skill in the Army, which was also in healthcare. Uh, and then I went back to college. And so um, I really did to help me pay for that. For that. And that was because, you know, I listen, I was raised by a single mom, a very strong an amazing woman who is my role model today. My dad had passed away uh, when I was 14, very early on. And I saw this as a way for me to help the family. Little did I know what I would learn uh, in that experience and that I left as an immature kid and I came back as an adult. And I took my college experience uh, very, very seriously um, and then went on to graduate school. And then Novartis, uh, ironically, was the first job out of graduate school. So that's how I ended up uh, learning about Novartis. Wow, that's fascinating. So you kind of did, you went there because it aligned with your purpose, it aligned with that significant thing that you wanted to do, but actually it was kind of a means to an end to get you to the next phase in your life. Yes, and I try to find those parallels, right? But many yeah. times we feel that they're trade-offs, they're mutually exclusive. Mm. And I tend to be a person who looks for the win-win and sometimes the extra win in uh, you know how you can do things, living a life of significance. Can you do good and do well? Um, and that's kind of how I'm wired. Wow. At what point did you decide, okay, healthcare's for me, this is where I'm gonna focus? I just really, really loved uh, patient care. I worked uh, in the mental health sector of, of, of healthcare when I was a social worker, and it was kind of a sweet spot for me. Um, in the way that I could connect with the physicians, with the families, with the patients. And so I knew I wanted to, to, to do something there. And my first experience with Novartis was as a social worker. Many times uh, we find that patients uh, need assistance with acquiring certain medications. And uh, at that time, Novartis, um, gosh, this must have been in the late 90s, had uh, and still today, I think, has a really strong patient assistance program. And so I would, I would have these patients who would need, um, you know, some of the therapies that Novartis offered. And I worked with a lot of the different pharma companies. I knew how to reach them to, to help get the patients the, to access to, to medicine. And so the physicians uh, where I worked uh, said, listen, you've got a lot of potential. You should really think about doing something different. Um, you know, this you're great at what you do, uh, but maybe you should think about going into the pharmaceutical industry. And I thought, really? Well, okay, let me learn more about it. 
And um, then I started applying. And back then, I'm dating myself, there wasn't so much applying through the internet. It was actually, you had to have your resume and mail it <laughs> to, to the company. Um, and, and I remember the Sunday paper would come and you would see like all the advertisements of the pharmaceutical roles. Wow. And I remember I sent my resume in and Novartis called me. Uh, and I remember already having some uh, just bias toward the company. And I went through the interview process and I was able to, um, you know, earn the role as a pharmaceutical sales representative. And by the way, I was, I'm born and raised, uh, for, I'm Louisiana. That's my home. Uh, and this all happened uh, in Louisiana. I became a sales rep for Novartis uh, in Louisiana. And I did that for a few years and then had the opportunity to move to New Jersey to take on a role in the home office. And from there, you know, the story kind of uh, evolved. I want to talk next a little bit about where you focused since you've been in the industry, which is obviously oncology. Why is oncology the place that you've stayed? I know you've done cardiovascular, osteoporosis, a couple of other things, but oncology does seem to be your main area of passion. It is my main uh, area of passion. And I think to sum it up for you, anytime you can work in a disease area that impacts patient survival, um, that's significant. And that's why I love it. Uh, the, other, the second reason is it's fast moving and it's disruptive. And you have an entire industry. You have the government. You have academia. You have so many sectors. Uh, uh, that come together that are all in pursuit of cure, all on the same page. And therefore, you see the funding, you see the investment, you see the best of our scientific um, uh, acumen in our nation and around the world dedicated to looking for more cures uh, for these different uh, tumor types and hematological conditions. And to be a part of that, um, is truly amazing. It's amazing work. Uh, and I'm just really fortunate to be one part of that puzzle piece, uh, to have my imprint uh, in that space that will change the trajectory of, of outcomes for patients, for all patients. Um, and and, and that's, that's my passion. Obviously, with the great things about working in oncology, there are a lot of challenges, I know you guys have had huge success recently. I think you just celebrated quite an important anniversary for one of your therapies, but I know there are huge challenges still in oncology. Um, one of those is clinical trial recruitment. So I was just wondering if you could discuss some of these barriers and maybe offer some solutions. Yes, I, look, I think if we had the solutions, we would definitely as an <laughs> industry and as a nation uh, be doing better. Well, the good news about the, the solution part of it is there are so many, again, just like the research part of it in terms of looking for cures and life extension, uh, there is huge momentum in the industry to uh, really uh, accelerate trial recruitment, get from bench to bedside more quickly with these assets and lead candidates, as well as to ensure diversity in clinical trials. And so um, health equity, or health inequity is, is clearly a topic of discussion when you look at clinical trial recruitment. And um, I think, you know, look, when we look at what happened uh, during the pandemic with COVID, I think none of those uh, things were new in terms of health inequity. But I think because the world was on pause, the world was on standstill, 
we were able to see just the impact of that in people who suffer um, more so than others. There was a lot of suffering, and it's hard to compare degrees of suffering, but the disproportionate suffering in certain um, ethnicities, racial groups, communities, parts of the world uh, was really uh, exposed, right? And so, you know, in terms of clinical trial recruitment, one of the things we're really committed to is diversity in clinical trials and being a part of the the solution there. Uh, And some of the the root causes of that is well-documented, right? Um, You know, lack of uh, education about clinical trials. Uh, Many times clinical trials are not offered to certain patients because there's a belief or a bias, right or wrong, that um, patients wouldn't participate or couldn't participate or wouldn't compliantly participate. Um, Understanding, you know, having the cultural competence uh, to do so. And then also, you know, on the healthcare side, you know, COVID has really uh, impaired our healthcare system in terms of staffing. I think it's no uh, secret that many of our uh, hospitals and institutions are really um, having some staffing issues um, in terms of in shortages of staff. And so you have that, again, that um, intersection of We've, we've, we're still having talent and staffing issues in the healthcare space, um, you know, coming out of the pandemic, but also we need to really accelerate uh, uh, expansion of clinical trials, um, in, ensuring that more of them are placed in the community. And the reason that's important, Isabel, is because when you look at the vast amount of research that's happening, yes, we are still really focused as an industry on um, those metastatic stages of uh, cancer and, and uh, really life extension, but we also know that the earlier you can de- screen, detect, and treat, we give patients in many cases best chance for cure and for longer survival, and that means a lot of those patients are found in the community setting, not necessarily in academic centers, not necessarily in, in NCI-designated cancer centers, and those community centers face a lot of these staffing issues as well as well as the, you know, the, the gap in terms of how do you train these sites to be trial sites. And so there are a number of root causes and barriers there um, that come together that need to be solved. Bottom line is multifactorial, and it's going to take more than one entity to solve it. What is Novartis's part in all of this? Uh, we've just launched an initiative we announced last year called the Beacon of Hope. Um, and this is with Novartis and the Novartis U.S. Foundation. We've joined forces with the Thurgood Marshall College Fund and the Morehouse School of Medicine and 26 other historically black colleges and universities um, and medical schools to address some of these root causes of disparities in health and education. Um, and we have this initiative, which includes a $20 million investment to help prepare up to 1,200 Black and African-American students to become the next generation of leaders in health, science, and technology um, and and business. And why is that important? Because many times um, these patients, what they tell us is, I want someone who looks like me, who understands my culture, who understands my background, and understand that there may be additional burdens and barriers that are in place that are not necessarily true for other are uh, for non-diverse uh, uh, patients. 
you're talking there about how it is so important for everyone to see themselves at the top of organisations. So there's more women than ever in the top jobs in pharma. Obviously, there's still a way to go, particularly for women of colour. But do you think it's changed or it is changing? I do think it is changing. I do not think it's changing fast enough. And think about it. Any type of paradigm shift or change can never come fast enough. Um, I think if I were to think about my own career, what was the linchpin of success for me? Sponsorship. The sponsorship I had along the way, and not one sponsor, but multiple sponsors along the way that allowed me to have opportunity to demonstrate my capability and my potential. And for those who do not have sponsorship, how many talented individuals are we leaving behind? And what a sponsor does, right? The sponsor can't do the work for you and they can't make you any more capable than you are. They can certainly be great mentors. They can certainly, um, you know, give you like um, opportunities and education and things like that. Advice, but the thing yeah. that and advice, but the thing that they do, in my opinion, that really makes the difference is that they take their own access and their own spotlight and they take it and they turn it and they open it up and they shine it on the sponsees. And that gets other gets the attention of others that, oh, wait, there's a talent here. There's a spotlight being shined on them. Now let's see what they can do. And so it's important that that spotlight gets shined at the right time, right? Because you don't want to expose the talent before they're ready. But that's one of the things I've observed as a pattern is that they're able to direct attention to certain talents, uh, whereas in the organization can see, oh, wait, you know, this person, you know, has a lot of potential and capability and look what they can do. And all of a sudden that momentum starts to be uh, created. And it also boosts the confidence of that sponsee to really demonstrate what they can do. I think the other thing is access. Many times the sponsor has great networks, great access. And what I found that when the sponsor opens their own access to those talents, then that is a multiplying effect um, of, of the momentum as well. And so those are the two things, you know, that I would say. And we still know, I mean, there is an article I just posted recently on LinkedIn um, that just cited that just 5% of the up-and-coming Black employees succeed in winning sponsorship compared to 20% of white employees. Now, overall, none of these numbers are great, by the way. I think we have to get better overall, but you can see the gap, right? If you could just close the gap between the 5 and 20%, we could really see an increase in, in diverse uh, leadership throughout the ranks. That was going to be one of my questions. If someone's listening and they're looking to progress in their career and they want to get a sponsor, what would your advice be? I think the first step is, listen, whatever opportunity you have, you want to maximize that opportunity. And that was always my mindset. And it was kind of an unconscious confidence that I really learned from, from, from my mother. Whatever your opportunity is, if you have an opportunity to sit in that seat, Whatever that seat is, whether you think it's big or it's small, maximize it because that then gets you the next opportunity. So I think that's the first thing. You, you Performance, right? You have to have really strong performance and maximize where you are and what you have an opportunity you've been given. 
that's a great springboard, right, for somebody to come along and say, hmm, you know, that's a real talent, right? And I think also not being afraid to ask for sponsorship. Uh, in many cases, I've been asked, people have asked me outright, Rashima, would you play the role of mentor? Will you play the role as sponsor? And those are two very different things. Mentors give great advice and they're great sounding boards or what have you. Sponsors are willing to put their name and their own credibility behind your name. They're willing to say things that advocate for you and support and support of you for promotions and opportunities when you're not in the room. Uh, and, under, and I think it's important for our up-and-coming town to understand the difference between a mentor and a sponsor and take inventory. Do you have mentors? You should have many and the right ones, but also do you have sponsors and who could those sponsors be? And I think the third thing is to understand that sponsorship is a two-way street. And what I mean by that, it's a very reciprocal relationship, meaning that I also learn from my sponsees and I always make a deal with them. This is what I um, I hope to, this is where I hope to create value for you. And this is where you can create value for me, whether that's being a truth teller about what's really happening in the organization, bringing a different perspective that could be generational, that could be, uh, um, you know, different facets of a diverse perspective. Uh, if they're closer to the customer than you are, or they're closer to the patients, can they bring those insights in that really the leader can use to be a more effective leader. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, that understanding that the two-way relationship is really important. And my last point is think of these as enduring relationships. And one of the missteps I see in, in up-and-coming talent is that sometimes either intentional or unintentionally, it can come across as opportunistic. And that the sponsor is only useful for the point mm -hmm. in time, and then you you don't hear from them anymore, right? Until they need the next thing. But understanding that it's an enduring relationship that must be facilitated, it must be watered, it must be cared for, and that it the sponsor needs to hear from you when things are great and when things are not great, um, and so that it doesn't feel like an opportunistic uh, relationship. Brilliant. So for my next question, this is all about women empowering women, similar topic, but slightly different. So I know you're a member of the network chief, but maybe you want to speak a little bit more generally about this. Why do you think it's important to be part of groups like this as a woman? What does it teach you about helping fellow women to succeed? I have to say, I think uh, the chief network and organization is an absolutely brilliant concept. I was happy to see it come along, and I feel extremely grateful to be a part uh, of the, the network and to be a member. And, you know, just to take a step back for everybody to understand, and I don't want to speak for chief, but um, it's really around, you know, how can we develop women you know, get them, help to get them, create the networks and experiences and, and, and safe havens to get them to the executive levels and the C-suites and keep them there. I mean, that's the bottom line, because we know that we uh, still have a gap in women on board, on corporate boards. We know that we still have a gap in female CEOs. We still have a gap in women in the C-suite. And so to have an organization that is solely focused on doing this, is uh, quite, quite, uh, I think, beneficial. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, again, like we talked about, 
people of color, right, not having that social capital within a relationship capital always within um, the organization in terms of sponsorship and mentorship. Now, you see the same with women in many cases. Tend, we tend to put our heads down. And I think about this in my earlier career, part of my career, put your head down, do a good job, um, you know, don't raise my hand, don't, you know, don't rock the boat and success will come to me. I and mean, yet you would see, I would see my male counterparts like just go after it, ask for the raise, ask for the next promotion, ask for it. Um, and, and it wasn't frowned upon, right? Um, and I think the other thing, um, you know, I learned along my career journey is being bold and ambitious. And there is nothing wrong with that. Um, as long as your intentions are purpose driven and in the spirit of, in my opinion, being a servant leader, being a leader, just to be a leader, to be the boss of people is not very exciting to me, but being a leader to use your platform at scale to uplift others, whether that's patients, um, the science, um, your team, people, the organization, that's a purpose-driven leader. And I think, you know, organizations like Chief help women to determine what is your core purpose? What is your why? What did you need in terms of a network or a tribe like, to get there? And they pair you with other women with, who are like-minded, maybe in the same industry, maybe in a different industry. And then how can you support one another to get to those ranks? And it's not only about getting to those ranks, but what does it do to stay there? Uh, because we also know that women have, uh, not that men don't, but we also know women have, we tend to be the, you know, the caregivers of everyone in our family. We're the nucleus, right, in many cases. And sometimes we will hold ourselves back because we're, we think that we can't do it or we'll be in balance with our families. And there are so many women who demonstrate different ways uh, to do that. There's so, there's so many other recipes to get there, but in, in, in terms of getting there, but also in staying there. Success is one thing, but it always comes with a bit of failure, particularly in the pharmaceutical industry. There are a lot of highs, a lot of lows, I can imagine. So I know you've got quite an interesting approach to or philosophy to failure. So, yeah, Rashima, what's your philosophy towards failure? I've, I've adopted Nelson Mandela's philosophy towards failure, and that <laughs> is I never lose. I win or I learn. As long as I'm winning or I'm learning, it's okay. And that's really, if you think about the pharmaceutical industry, you are right. I mean, think about how many shots on goal you have to have to get a success. To work in this space, you have to be okay with iteration. I do not call it failure. Because from every failure, you have the second iteration and you improve upon it. At least you should be if you're a learner or if your organization is a learning organization. And what I think the opportunity is, right, is how do you accelerate the speed of learning? As people say, fail fast, iterate, go again, mm -hmm. right? And it gets you without those, without that sequence, it's very hard to get the success. It's very rare that we get it right the first time. Sometimes we do. Sometimes by planfulness and sometimes by accident. However, um, you have to be okay with an iterative process and knowing that either you're going to win or you're going to learn. Is there a standout moment you can remember where you really were faced with something quite challenging, but you use this philosophy to kind of get yourself out of it and keep moving forward? 
oh gosh, Misty, which one would I want to pick? Of course, <laughs> uh, you know, again, if anyone tells you that they didn't experience any of this and they just kind of rolled out of bed and hit these levels of career, I, I would wonder if that were true. But, you know, I think about um, a time, and I won't mention company or, 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 or product, but we were, uh, we were coming off of a really, really successful launch. And uh, I knew that the next launch would be difficult just because you were pioneering a new space. It was a new specialty area. It was transformational. It was a paradigm shift. Paradigm shifts take time. But we were so used to, you know, transformational launches. You know, it's like just this, what I would call a bolus of demand. Um, and that, you know, recognizing being able to recognize what's different and what's similar about business situations and what playbook are you going to need to, to, to gain success. And I, I found, even though I knew that it would be challenging, leading the people through that challenging time, and it wasn't, I mean, it was about maybe a 12 to 18 month period, but it felt like an eternity to the people because they were used to a certain type of trajectory. And I found that it did really pull on my leadership capability um, in terms of the energy that needs to be given, being able to paint the vision, being able to tell people to show shoots of green that it's happening, it's going to happen. And to when something is hard and it's going to take longer, how do you manage the stakeholders, right? How do you manage the pressure and how do you inspire the people when the dashboards are red, right? But you know that underneath the ocean, it's changing. You have the insights, you know it's going to happen. And being true to your fundamentals, if you've really identified, these are the insights, these are the right levers, and it's about executing them with precision, success will come. What are those leading indicators, shoots of green, that we take now and say, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And getting people to that point and then seeing them and stepping away and letting them see their own success, there's no better feeling. But I can tell you, someone can look at that and say, it feels, it felt like we were failing. Everything was red for the first several months, but we were not. We were learning. We were iterating. And success did come. Um, and this ended up being, uh, it's on a trajectory to be a very successful therapy because it is transformational for patients. And you touch on yourself as a leader there. And that actually brings me on to my last question for you today. Now, we've spoken about your career in quite a lot of depth, but it would be great if you could sum up some of those key lessons that have really shaped the kind of leader you are today. Wow. I would start with the, the North Star of being purpose-driven, understanding your why. Is your why for yourself or is your why for others? That's one. I think, two, being bold, being disruptive, not for the sake of being disruptive, but being a change agent, knowing that patients are depending on us in these organizations to be change agents on their behalf, and being bold and courageous to take smart and calculated bets, but don't be afraid to take a bet that could be game-changing for people and for patients and for families. And I think third, really having a strong network of truth tellers around you, whether that's truth tellers about the business, truth tellers about your leadership, truth tellers about how you're integrating your life, right? You can be the best leader and the best, the team can love you, and 
but your personal life could be falling apart for whatever reason. And it's not that it's your fault or because you focus too much on business, but the point is someone who can see when you're pulling too much in one direction, you know, those truth tellers to say that will be fine. You need to focus more here. I've had those, um, in, you know, in my life, I've had those, I surround myself with truth, tell, truth tellers. I don't tend to hire wilting flowers. I like to banter to get to the right solutions for patients and for the organization. So I tend to hire courageous people who will look me in the eye and they're not afraid to say, I think that that's, not right. And here's why. And I love that. And I welcome that. And so I think being bold about the possibilities um, is really important. So those are the three things, um, you know, being purpose driven, understanding the why is it for yourself or for others to being bold. Don't put yourself in a box. Uh, really be aspirational, not um, an unattainable aspiration, but really being aspirational about the significance that you can have as a leader and the impact with your platform, your leadership platform. And third, surround yourself with a great support system who can uh, be truth tellers in every aspect of, of your being. Well, what a fascinating lesson there. I loved reading the article, which will be published in Gold24 on the 25th of October. And hearing the conversation gave so many additional insights. What would you say was a highlight for you? I think there's a theme running through there of truth telling, always a sign of a good leader, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I found what she was talking about there incredibly interesting. But I think something that stood out for me was all around sponsorship and the value of sponsorship. I think we've spoken a lot about mentorship on the podcast, mm. but it seems like sponsorship is actually possibly a more worthwhile way that senior figures in pharma can elevate the next generation of leaders. So yeah, I really enjoyed that. And particularly the point she made about this being a mutually beneficial relationship as well and ensuring there's something in it for both sides to really sure it's delivering, it's delivering on that value really. Yeah, absolutely. And it's especially important to note the point she raised as well about ensuring employees from all backgrounds are getting access to these opportunities. So yeah, so much potential there. Yes, and particularly stark statistics that she raised. What was a highlight for you? Well, I'd say probably staying on the theme of diversity, actually. I really enjoyed her discussion of the challenges facing clinical trial recruitment. Um, her passion for it was clear, and she had some some brilliant ideas for how these could be solved, including by engaging young people and moving uh, more trial sites into the community setting. Yeah, I was really impressed by her passion in that area as well, as well as some of the tangible strategies she was offering. I think often you can ask quite challenging questions like this and it's hard to get to the root of the issue, but I feel like she did that really successfully. Yeah, definitely. She really opened up and got into the nitty gritty, as it were. Mm. Um, so as we said at the start, the Catalyst interview is always one of our favourite parts of every issue of Gold. And we're so excited to have added Rashima to our lineup of fantastic interviewees, a really inspirational figure in pharma. So thank you to Rashima for taking the time to speak to us. And as Helena mentioned, the shorter written version of the interview will be available online soon to coincide with the publication of our next issue. So do look out for that. But that is all we have time for today. So thank you for listening. I must remind you to please subscribe if you have not already. And finally, as we've said, look out for the next issue of Gold. It's going to be a great one, 25th of October. It's been one of our favourites to put together, so we hope you enjoy it. Um, but until then, take care and it's goodbye from us for now. Bye.